This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. So we began a series last week called Favorite Passages. And uh, I had the privilege of kicking that off, looking at what several Bible apps and uh, Bible Gateway and other groups have identified as one of the top favorite verses, which is Jeremiah 29, 11. And I encourage you, if you have a favorite verse, if you have a life verse, that if you've never taken the opportunity to look at everything around it, I would encourage you to do that, uh, to study the context, to look at the original audience, to look at who the speaker was. Were these words directly from God? Were they from Paul? Were they from uh, John? Were they, you know, from Luke? Were they, what would, you know, who was writing them? And who were they written to? And what was the bigger story that they're set in? And I think I mentioned last week, but it's always good that if you have a verse and it's in a particular book of the Bible, go to the Bible Project and watch the video on that book because that'll give you a wonderful overview uh, of where your passage sits. And, um, and so that's what we did with Jeremiah 29, 11. We looked at the context of it. We, look at, we looked at how it was written to people who were in a place they did not want to be. And how there was a false prophet who was saying, don't unpack, you're going home. And I'm sure that's the message their hearts longed for and to believe. And then comes the word of God through Jeremiah. No, don't unpack, settle in, build houses, have families, plant gardens, settle in. But this is the promise that I have for you that I will give you a future and a hope. Not right at this moment, but it is coming. Those are hard, but we need to understand that sometimes that's where we are. Well, I want to talk today about my life verse, and it wasn't written to me. It was written to the prophet Jeremiah, so we're still going to be in the book of Jeremiah. But over the years, this has become increasingly um, something that I've seen God do and in, seeing the Holy Spirit invite me to live out in my own life in, a, in some very personal ways. And so I want to share a little bit about that. We know that Jeremiah was given a very difficult assignment as a prophet. And just to give you a context for that, let me uh, read you uh, some of what God's actual call to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Uh, God says to Jeremiah, or Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now it's interesting that those words sound very much like David's words in Psalm 139. And that's true of all of us. But in Jeremiah's case, not only had God formed him in his mother's womb, but he had planned, his plan for his life before one of them came to be is that he would be a prophet. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak, and I'm too young. I've always loved this because the first thing he does is, not not me. I I can't talk, and I'm too young. No one will believe me. No one's going to buy it. Particularly in the ancient world, wisdom was something you attributed to those that were older, like me. It's really helpful sometimes, you know? And uh, and so if you had gray hair, uh, and some of mine is real, 
And, uh, and so you were listened to far more than younger people. We've kind of swapped that a little bit out in our day and age. But, but nonetheless, he said, I'm too young. No one's going to listen to me. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go every, to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. And then God says a strange thing in verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And I don't know about you, but if I was Jeremiah, I'd go, excuse me, what was that last part? And why are you going to have to rescue me? You know, and what am I not to be afraid of? That's a little bit foreboding, isn't it, in terms of a call to ministry? And then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And then God gives him a vision. God gives him a vision of an almond tree, and and he says, I'm going to fulfill my word. And then he gives him another vision, and this vision is of a boiling pot. And this boiling pot is tilting toward us from the north, is what Jeremiah sees. And the Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. This is the land that Jeremiah lives in. This is Judah. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. And then he talks about how he's going to come and bring out judgment on his own people. And then he ends his little, he ends this piece um, oh, he says in verse 16, I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. So then he ends Jeremiah's call with this. Get yourself ready, Jeremiah. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you, and do not be terrified, or I will terrify you before them. Today, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like kind of scary, huh? Today I've made you a fortified city, a pillar, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings and Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares uh, the Lord. Now, that's quite a commissioning sermon, right? Not the one I want to have, that's for sure. But that's the one Jeremiah had. That was God's call on his life. And what we're going to learn is it turned out that ministry is far more difficult than he even imagined. Just as difficult as God said it would be. And more than once in his life, he cries out to God. He cries out because he just feels so overwhelmed by his assignment. He can't bear it. And one of those times, right before we go to chapter 15, where we're going to camp for a moment or two, is in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, uh, God says to Jeremiah, verse 1, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithful, faithless live at ease? You've planted them and they've taken root and they grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me. You test my thoughts about you. And then he gets upset. But, like, we don't ever do that, do we? Do you ever get upset with God? 
And he says, drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked and animals and birds have, the animals and birds have perished. And moreover, the people are saying, he'll not see what happens to us. This was what Jeremiah, this was the period of time that Jeremiah was living in and ministering in. And I love it. This is God's answer. This is another uh, uh, kind of famous passage from Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, if you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how will you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? He says, your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you and they've raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. Ouch. This is hard, isn't it? I mean, this, who gets called to this kind of ministry? Now, at the end of chapter 13, God does promise Jeremiah that these nations that are coming against his nation, that someday he will uproot them. And he will uproot Israel and Judah out of them. And he will send them back to their own countries. Interestingly enough, he says that at that point, he will bless them because he had promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through his people. So there's years and years of struggle between God's call on Jeremiah and chapter 15, where we want to look. And so let me unpack it. And then I want to end by telling you kind of the story, the personal story of how this intersects with my own life. And, um, So, first of all, at the beginning of chapter 15, God once again confirms to Jeremiah that he is going to bring judgment. Throughout the book, Jeremiah keeps asking God not to do that. After all, God had sent him to preach repentance and to call the nation to turn around. If they didn't do that, didn't that mean that his ministry had failed? That his ministry was in vain? Wouldn't you assume that? So I can understand Jeremiah's deep despondency, his confusion, and his struggle to understand what God was about to do. And, and by the way, what God was saying that the people were doing was not the same as someone who did not know God, did not know that God had given them a promise to rescue and that God was loving and that he was kind and that he was gracious towards them and forgiving. These were not, these were his people who knew all that about God and then turned away. And God describes this beautifully actually in Jeremiah chapter two, where he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If this were a country Western song, it would be, my people have rejected me and they're looking for love in all the wrong places. That would be what he's saying in Jeremiah two. And in chapter 15, Jeremiah's wrestling with the fact that all this has happened, that he feels like his entire ministry, God's call on his life, has been in vain. And so uh, in, uh, in chapter 15, verse 10, he says, Alas, my mother, that you gave me birth, a man with whom the whole land strives and contends. I have neither lent nor borrowed, yet everyone 
curses me or hates me, which is kind of funny, isn't it? He said, look, I haven't loaned anyone money. You know, I've not borrowed from anyone else, which might have been the normal reasons why people would get mad at other people in that day. But he said, I haven't done any of that, and yet everyone hates me. And chapter 15, this place is one of four, at least four very moving messages of loneliness, hopelessness, even kind of suicidal ideation. And what I mean by that is with suicidal ideation is when somebody feels so much pain, so much hopelessness, that they wish they were dead. It's not the same as the intent to take your life, uh, but it's rather just this sense of, uh, it's so dark, I cannot find the hope to go on. And this is what Jeremiah feels. So then we come to verse 15, and I want to read the passage, and then I'll back up through each verse. Uh, So 15, chapter 15, verse 15. Lord, you understand. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. If you repent... I will restore you, that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. So now let me talk about each one of these verses, because I think it's a beautiful message that gives us tremendous amounts of, of freedom to talk with God openly and honestly, and yet to let him also challenge and speak into our own lives. So in in verse 15, Jeremiah is feeling essentially some of what God is feeling. He's rejected and despised by his own people. And who would we read would also be rejected and despised of his own people in the New Testament? Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. These words would be applied to him. He knows that God will bring justice. He knows that God's long-suffering. And he's torn between wanting God to be long-suffering towards even his persecutors, and yet at the same time, it's very personal. It's very personal. And so he also wants justice for himself. And he wants God to know that his suffering reproach has been done for God. That if he'd given his own choices, he probably would have chosen to sit in the circle with all the partiers. In verse 16, I love this verse, Jeremiah describes God's word to him as food as the only nourishment that has been keeping him going. God's words were a joy to his heart and a delight. Isaiah would later talk about God's word the same way. He would say in in 55.2, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Essentially, Isaiah and Jeremiah are inviting us to a very different kind of banquet table than the one we're used to. We're foodies in Portland, aren't we? 
you know? We love food, and we love different tastes and all different spices and all kinds of ethnic food, and, and we're into that, but this is a very different kind of banquet table. Food nourishes the body. This nourishes the soul as well as the body, the heart. Jesus would later come and say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, after my message this morning, we're going to take communion. And I have often thought about how when we take communion, we're consuming Jesus. And in a consumer-oriented culture, what a better thing to consume. We spend our whole, work, our whole week consuming so much, so many other things. I love that we're invited to come and consume Jesus. And, and also we're told in John 1 that Jesus came, that the word became flesh. So when we talk about delighting in God's word, we're not just talking about this. We're also talking about Jesus. We consume Jesus. That's why we do communion. So the word is the joy and the delight of my own heart. And I often say that when I open God's word. God, your words were found and I'm eating them. And I'm not only eating your words, these ones that are written on pages or pulled up on a screen on my phone or my tablet or whatever, but I'm also eating Jesus. I'm consuming Jesus because he's also the word, the living word. And so... We're caught, Jeremiah understood that, even in the most difficult of times. It's verse 17 that originally really drew me to this passage. The one where it says that he was not in the circle of revelers or merrymakers. And it probably was because I was feeling on the outside in my own life. And the people on the inside that were partying didn't seem to even notice that I wasn't there. And so I felt left out. And yet I felt like God had called me to ministry, and yet I wasn't on the inside. And I was struggling with that. And Jeremiah knew that if he was obedient to God's call on his life, that it made it harder and harder for him to show up for Super Bowl parties or cocktail hours or get-togethers. Because nobody wanted to hear what he had to say at those events. They wanted to keep it light and bright and happy. They didn't want to hear his message. They didn't want to hear what was heavy on his heart. And then Jeremiah turns to complaint. And I love this. I love that the Psalms tell us over and over again that we can share with God honestly what's on our hearts. And so he says, why has my wound been incurable? Refusing to be healed. He says, God, in in a real way... It's kind of like I'm out on a hike, I get to this spot, there's this beautiful stream and it's rushing and it's cool and I sit next to it and I refresh myself and I drink of it and it's amazing and God, that's what you're like on a really good day. And then I show up a couple days later, a week later, and it's dry as a bone. And I think, where did you go, God? What happened? Why aren't you here? You're like a deceptive stream. The reality is, is that in Palestine... Many brooks only had water in them if they had a good, heavy, soaking rain, kind of like the one we had a couple weeks ago. They had to have a rain like that, and then they were rushing beautiful streams. And so the idea of a deceptive stream would have been a concept that everyone would have been well acquainted with. And he's saying, God, 
God, this is what you're like. One day you're there and the next day you're not. And I don't understand. And you know what I've come to learn over the course of my life is that God can handle an honest ventilation of all that you're feeling. You can throw a temper tantrum with God. He gets it. He understands. If when you are done, you will say, you are still my God. It's just like a child. Children throw temper tantrums. And and in the end, guess what? They still want mom and dad to hold them. They still long for that parent to wrap them in their arms. And that's exactly the way God wants us to be with him. He says, I get it. I get it. But I want you to crawl into my lap when you're done and say, I know you're still there for me. And then verse 19. And I want to read verse 19 from the Amplified Bible. It will come up on the screens here. Because that was, I I memorized this passage in the New American Standard. And I'll explain that in just a moment because there's some difference in wording that actually helps us understand. But this is how the Amplified says, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord to Jeremiah. And by the way, the Amplified was like the original message Bible. But you all don't know that because you're too, most of you are too young. And you've never, you didn't even know there was a thing called an Amplified Bible. But the Amplified Bible was essentially took the original text and then wrote in around it to help us understand the meaning. Really, it was what Eugene Peterson did years later when he wrote the message. Okay. So it's, it's not the kind of Bible you want to use for very correct interpretation type things, but it's lovely to read to just get further insight. So here's what it says in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord to Jeremiah, if you return and give up this mistaken tone of distrust and despair, then I will give you again a settled place of quiet and safety. And you will be my minister. And if you separate the precious from the vile, cleansing your heart from unworthy and unwarranted suspicions concerning God's faithfulness, you shall be my mouthpiece. I've always loved the way that reads. One of the reasons I like how this reads, besides giving insight, is that in the New American Standard, this verse says, if you extract the precious from the worthless... And that was the line that captured my heart. If you extract the precious from the worthless. Now, the NIV reads, if you utter worthy, not worthless words. So which is it? Well, actually, they're both correct. The theme here is that there are times when what is happening around us to us feels like it is worthless. And there cannot be anything precious that would come out of this situation. There can't be anything redeeming. And when we are in those places, God calls us to return to him, to lay down our mistaken tone of distrust and despair. And let me tell you, he is so patient with this. He doesn't say, put that down now, or you're in trouble. No. No, he waits and waits and waits far longer than any of us wait for one another. He waits for us to struggle with laying that tone of distrust and despair down. And, and then he invites us to come back to him, to stand before him, to invite him to cleanse our heart of unworthy and unwarranted sus- suspicions concerning God's faithfulness. And then he promised Jeremiah that if he did that, he would continue to be God's mouthpiece. And I'm sure that Jeremiah, living at that time, didn't think about how he would be speaking 
to Sunset Presbyterian Church in 2019. He's still God's mouthpiece. He's still speaking to us today. So let me tell you my own story. And if you've lived in Portland for a long time, it's going to be a little bit like a trip down memory lane. Um, And there are parts of this story that I'm going to tell I'm not proud of, but, you know, uh, they're my story. Okay, so here we go. I moved to Oregon in 1976 to do youth ministry at a church just down the street from here. And uh, I moved in January, I think January 2nd or 3rd. They had 32 days, something like that, of straight snow, sleet, and clouds. I mean, just every day. It was horrible, horrible weather. I was living off what is now Brookwood Parkway, but it was just Brookwood then, and off TV Highway. And on the first day that it finally cleared, some of you have heard me tell this story, I drove my little Volkswagen Beetle down the road, made my left-hand turn, and said, oh my gosh, they put a mountain up. Because if you've driven down TV Highway, you know that it looks like they just put a backdrop of a mountain at the end of the street, and I had not seen it. And it was truly, I just thought, well, they, obviously that hasn't been there before, and they just put a mountain up yesterday. I came to be the women's leader in a youth group uh, to work with a youth pastor that I knew well, and I was very, very excited about it. They had promised him that they would create a paid position sometime in the early fall. And so I came to come and volunteer to get involved, to get to know the kids. I needed a job. Well, if you've been around Portland, do you remember 1976 in Portland? We were in a recession. It wasn't such a great time. Southwest Portland was almost completely undeveloped. And there was hardly any place to apply for jobs. And no one was hiring. And I mean no one. And I went everywhere. Oh, my gosh. Finally, in desperation... This is the part I'm not proud of. And if you happen to work for this company, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to degrade it in any way. But I finally walked into the Kmart on Murray and TV Highway. And, of course, they hired me on the spot. That's not the good part. I worked in the grill. This is not a snack bar. This is not the Starbucks of today, which is, you know, this was the grill. And I'm here to say you've not lived until you've blue-lighted a liver special. And I have. So I'm working at Kmart, and I'm doing youth ministry, and I'm loving the kids and loving the church, loving the whole opportunity. It's all great, wonderful. Everything's going great. But as summer goes on, I begin to realize that there's going to be some roadblocks to moving into a paid position. And, um, and by fall, it becomes apparent that they want somebody with a college education. I had two years. I had an associate's degree, but I'd not finished my bachelor's degree. And so I began to realize this isn't going to happen for me. Well, I'd already quit Kmart, thank God, and uh, <laughs> in anticipation of getting the paid position. But I, and now, if I was going to stay, I needed a job. So I actually applied at Poor Richard's, which was the Ruth Chris Steakhouse of that day. Again, if you've lived here a long time, you know what I'm talking about. And I got hired. And apparently, you made a lot of money in these jobs uh, as a waitress in that day anyway, and uh, tips and all that kind of stuff. The problem was I would be working all the times that I would have normally been hanging out with students and doing things with the youth group. It was not compatible at all with what I was going to do. And so I remember thinking, this is not why I didn't come to Portland to waitress at a steakhouse. That's not why I came here. And it just became more and more apparent that God was sending me back to California, Sacramento, where I'd grown up. And I did not want to go. 
And I was really mad at God about it. Really mad. Several days before I left to drive back, I was struggling to understand what this was all about. And I remember one evening before I went home, I drove to the top of Sylvan Hill, found the lookout spot, looking out over the lights, what lights there were, this very, not very developed out here in the southwest side of Portland, but looked at the lights at, at there and just got out of my car and said, God, all I wanted to do was impact the lives of high school and college-age women for Jesus Christ in southwest Portland. What was the problem with that? What would be the... What, what, why? Why am I now going back to California? By the way, when I got back to California, I needed a job. Again, I had a friend that said, you know, why don't you go work at, I have a dentist that needs an assistant. You didn't have to be trained. They trained you on the job. And that day, I worked in a dentist office for a year. Let me just say, I hate the dentist. And if you're a dentist, I'm so sorry. But I don't, I mean, I just, me and dental work do not get along. I actually have a very small mouth. I know you don't believe that, but I really do. And... I gag. I'm a gagger. I have to tell every dentist that. You don't want to put anything. I mean, it's just a terrible thing. I worked in a dentist office. I couldn't believe it. These were the, these were the Jeremiah 29 years of my life. There have been more since then. But. So I, I just didn't understand. I got back in my car. I cried for a while. And then I went home and packed up my little Volkswagen Beetle. So angry at God. Well, a friend had calligraphied something for me that she thought would be an encouragement and taped it to the glove box of my car. And the morning that I left to drive home to California, left around 6 a.m. in the morning, and I remember getting in my car and just saying, okay, God, just to let you know, I'm pissed. This is not going to be a happy drive. I'm mad at you. I'm not going to pray. I don't care what you think. I'm just mad. This is it. And I kept that up all the way to the border of California and Oregon. And then I couldn't do it anymore. And I grabbed, I remember I pulled over to rest stop, and it's one where there's a river down below it, and I kind of hiked down to the river. I grabbed the piece of paper that my friend had calligraphied off, and when I got down to the river, I looked at it and read it, and it said this. If this vision you have of God does not move and drive, and pull, and tug, and wrench, and twist, and hold, and stride, and walk off grimly after him. It is nothing. I learned many years later, it was written by a martyred missionary, and that moment was my return to God. That was my return to God. And before him I stood. I knew that following Jesus didn't mean that life always worked out well and that everything comes up roses because that was not the path Jesus walked. And I knew mine wouldn't be either. But I knew God was asking me to give up this mistaken tone of distrust and despair and to trust him for what he would do in my life. And wherever you are today, he's inviting you to do the same thing. Maybe you're in that settled place of quiet and safety. And if you are, embrace it. I have been in those seasons of life that are wonderful. Embrace it. Thank God for it. Enjoy it. It's what he wants you to do. But if you are not, if you're in one of those places, or if you know of someone else that is in one of those places they don't want to be, 
where they're feeling like their pain is perpetual, refusing to be healed. Like God's deceptive stream. Then I want to invite you to return, to come and stand before him. That wasn't the last time God asked me to extract precious from worthless. God would ask me to do that when I was in the throes of infertility in my 30s, which was my worst nightmare. And trust that Psalm 68, 6 is true, that God sets the lonely in families. God would ask me to do that again when my husband left and my marriage ended. He would ask me to trust Isaiah 54 that says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song and shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than those of her who has a husband. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all, of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. And you know what I love about that passage? Well, I do believe that God has invited me to lean into that and live that, perhaps more now than most of you, that passage is not just about me. That passage is about all of us because we are all the bride of Christ and we will all be at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. We're, it's about all of us. And God would ask me to trust him in ministry through more heartbreaking transitions and conflicts as well over the years. And trust that what God said to Peter is true about the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember how I drove to the top of Sylvan Hill and begged God for the opportunity to influence high school girls and college-age women? I look back now, and I realize I think God was kind of smiling. (laughs) Maybe even chuckled. Oh, for all I know, he belly laughed. I don't know. But I think what he was saying was, oh, Barbara, if you only knew, if you only knew, you have no idea what I'm going to do. Not just high school girls and college-age women, men and women across Portland, people from around the country and around the world, I'm going to use you, but you have to come back And give up this mistaken tone of distrust and despair. And over and over and over again, I'm going to ask you to extract precious from worthless. To cleanse your heart of unworthy suspicions concerning me. And believe that I will fulfill my promise to you. Let's pray. Father, what a humble privilege it is to stand here so many years later. And be able to tell how you have worked in my life, teaching me to believe that you are truly a good, good father. Even when it did not seem like it. That you are a good God and that your kingdom purposes prevail. And they are for good, they're for our good, for your glory. Father, wherever anyone is at today, as we move now into a time of communion, I would ask that we would literally come back, repent, 
and take the word, the living word, Jesus, and let it nourish our hearts and our soul. Soften them to say, yes, God, I believe in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope that this morning you've been nourished by the word, by worship, by one another. We want you to know that here at Sunset, we're a house of prayer for all nations, and we want to invite you, if you're carrying a burden this morning, if, uh, if you would like to pray with someone, I want to invite those who uh, are intercessors and elders and those who pray to come down front and just come and join one of us, and we will listen to your need and then just pray over you, and that would be a great privilege for us to do that. God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. You may go.